This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. This week, I'm kicking around the challenges of building a modern economy with artificial intelligence, cloud computing, and machine learning, the big sexy stuff. But as we've been building out these new technologies, we might have overlooked one of the most basic assumptions, our connectivity situation. All of this innovation is going nowhere if we don't have the fiber to connect it together. My guest this week is Matthias Friedstrom, a telecom evangelist and a regular on the program. Matthias explains that we're facing an emerging bottleneck with our networks. There's a limit to how much capacity we can push across fiber connections with our current technology, and the U.S. in particular has a vanishing inventory of fiber to make the connections in the first place. Adding fiber between cities and states is a difficult, expensive, and time-consuming endeavor. Sounds like a blast. This is a really cool and a little unsettling conversation that you won't want to miss. So get comfortable and enjoy this conversation with my friend, Matthias Friedstrom. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. I want to dive into this conversation on this idea of Shannon's limit. So I've been in this, I'm not a telecom person, but I've been in the data center and IT business for going on 30 years. Uh, I've never heard this term. And not long ago, I heard you in a conversation, a, a brief conversation, talking about some of the technical obstacles. There's a lot of things to work through in your industry. But one of the uh, technical opportunities, but also obstacles is this. There's... Tr Tremendous growth. I know that because we went from building one data center, maybe two every couple years, to five or six a year. Like it's just yep. whole campuses. Um, uh, one of our campuses that we have in Georgia, we could put eleven or twelve of our existing buildings on. These are more than a thousand megawatt capable campuses. They're amazing, and others are are in the works. So. We've got this explosion of growth, of consumption, yep. and there is no data center without telecom, without connectivity, f fiber, and um, every every form of connectivity. So you guys are facing the same growth challenges. Yep. What do you mean by Shannon's limit, and why is, is the growth challenge just a matter of the people needed to get it in the ground, or is it a um, physics problem of, look, we, we you know, we can only get so many frequencies out of this thing. We can only push yep. so many traffic. Help us to understand the challenge you guys are facing. Yeah, no, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to try to explain, okay. you know. Uh, basically, what we do is connectivity, as you said. And, and mm. connectivity means we're sending traffic between cities, you know. We're sending traffic between Atlanta to New York. There's a lot of traffic going there. We're using optical system that is pushing light through a fiber cable. Uh, so... Basically, when we started this in the late 90s, you, we installed one type of optical equipment and that optical equipment had a certain amount of traffic that it could push over that fiber link. And then over the years, development in the optical industry have always <clears throat> developed a system that is almost twice as good as the old system, almost on a seven-year basis. So every seventh year or 10 year, you could take out your old equipment, put in the new equipment, and you suddenly had twice as much capacity in that system. You still only worked on one fiber pair. What Shannon's limit is talking about is the actual physical limit of how much traffic you can push down a fiber cable. Mm. There's obviously 
not a perfect fiber cable. It's not vacuum in them. So it's, it's there's yeah, air in them. And, and mm -hmm. of course, glass is not 100% perfect. So this all imperfectness in the cable makes there is a physical limit to how much you can push down a fiber cable. Okay. And that physical limit is about to be reached right now. So I would say three years ago, we didn't talk about channels limit. We heard about channels limit and people said, you know, there will be one day when we will reach this limit. There is still optical development going on. So there will be ways of pushing more traffic down a path and, and scientists will come out with new ways of doing that, but they're not going to be able to double the capacity like they've done before. Mm. So for us, and what this means to operator is that if you only have one fiber pair between two cities, you cannot rely on just taking out the old gear, putting in the new gear, and suddenly have twice as much traffic to sell. That's not going to happen. By the gear, you mean the, the optical gear on either side of the fiber optical cable? Optical gear on either side can only right. push so many terabits down that one single fiber path. Right. And, and a new system, a shiny new system that is more shiny than the one you had, will only be 5, 10, 15% better than the old one. And therefore, everyone who have the ambitions like we have to send a lot of traffic between cities now need to look at more fiber pairs. Mm. The only way for us to expand the network or the traffic between Atlanta and New York is to buy one more fiber pair or at least one more fiber pair from someone and mm. put another system on that one. And by that, doubling the capacity we can send between Atlanta and New York. Five years ago, we would just buy a new system from Infineer or Sienna or Nokia or whoever and replace the old system, put in the new system, and suddenly we had twice as much to sell. Right. Uh, and with the internet traffic in the world growing 20 25% per year, this is not good enough. We now suddenly need to lease more fibers. So the optical world is still going to develop. They're still going to come out with new gear. But the pace of innovation is going to slow down because we've reached a physical limit on how much you can push down a fiber. Mm. So that that physical limit is called Shannon's limit, obviously because of Claude Shannon, who in the 50s, I believe, mm -hmm. found out this and said that one point in time in the history of optical engineering, there will be a physical limit here and, and by some fantastic right. calculations, you can calculate that. Uh, yeah. And it all comes down to fibers being not perfect. You know, if every fiber would be absolute, super straight and perfect and 100% perfect glass, you wouldn't reach this. But of course, fiber cables are bent along the way. They're yeah, following railroads, ra roads, water, rivers, whatever. And, and they're not perfect. And therefore, traffic is not going to be perfect. And, and that's what we have reached right now. Right. So for us, it's, it's a huge challenge because uh, leasing one more fiber pair means another cost that we need to take care of. That means another number of amplifier stations along the way that we need to put more equipment in. There's more power we need to pay for. Uh, the data centers where we connect, the QTS data centers and others are still going to be the same, but we need more space from QTS to host more of our equipment in there to serve your customers in the data center. So yeah. this is a really, really big challenge for the entire industry. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, we built 96 fiber pairs on many roads in our network. Uh, and there been, we've had 90 of them available for until now, really. Right. Uh, and we've always spoken about, you know, when is the day coming when someone is actually going to start to use all these fiber pairs? And I think that day is now coming. 2023 is the year when we suddenly start to understand why we in 1998 built 96 fiber pairs. Right. <laughs> 
When I remember when I first, um, we we weren't called eDeltaCom or uh, QTS. We were eDeltaCom back then. The uh, data center that sort of launched QTS, the major data center anyway, and it's a three hundred thousand square foot raised floor, four hundred thousand square foot overall capacity. And I remember seeing that we had a few suites and a few cabinets on the floor, but we'll never fill this place up. And that first 12, 18, 24 months, it was kind of a trickle. And it's like a tsunami, though. It was a yeah. trickle until it was a 400-foot wave. And then all of a sudden, not only did it start quickly, you know, it was like we were excited. Well, of course, we built this all this capacity because we want to get it stabilized and operate it. And then all of a sudden, we're like, whoa, what do we do? We went down to downtown Atlanta. We bought a million square foot facility, which was about a 600,000 square foot uh, raised floor. So it was the old Sears uh, distribution center. So not a, uh, there was some inefficiency in design, but we converted it. We're now, uh, Matias, working on our fourth building down there to hit about 4 million square feet in this one location, not the rest of our sites. Because it's just this exponential growth, you know, uh, hundred to anywhere from seventy-five to hundred megawatt per facility, just crazy in this one campus. Yeah. I tell me if this analogy works. As you're talking, it seems to me it's like we've built um, a railroad line from, you know, uh, I don't know Tokyo to Fukuoka, Japan, or whatever, London to Edinburgh, and over the years, as we needed more, we built stronger and faster engines to run on this track. We have a station on each end that's only been mildly modified to accept the different size of engine, but we've got the same track. And the way that yep. we've dealt with capacity is we've added more power and more um, speed to the locomotives. Well, now yep. we're reaching the theoretical limit. You can only go through some of these towns at a certain speed. It doesn't matter how fast your locomotive is. It doesn't matter um, because there's bends in the track and there's these other things. We either need new track or new, uh, in other words, stack this track up or or different routes or, in other words, just adding the locomotive to either end. We have we are reaching quickly the theoretical limit that on this track with this number of cars and these pairs. And not only that, the stations at the each end also need to now be able to accommodate. Because if I start growing track, uh, they yeah. need to, do they have the ability to grow and receive um, the different things? And maybe that's not a great analogy, but I'm imagining this track that's kind of permanently laid, that's got right of way and permitted and it's in there, but it comes with noise. It comes with bends and twists and limits. Yep. And we've been able to overcome that in the past through these other ways, but the old ways aren't going to work for the new challenges ahead of us. Is that accurate? No, I think that's that's a, a really accurate, uh, and I think you know you can you can absolutely use that. <clears throat> the only thing I think there is that the actual track between London and Edinburgh is is going to be that track is still usable. Uh, right. We can still put more trains on, on on the sort of separate tracks next to each other's. It doesn't really matter if we change the track because new fibers built in 2023 
yeah, they're better than the old fibers built in 1998, but they're not that much better. Right. Uh, you still have the bends and the curves and, and everything with them. You know, you, mm -hmm. there's no one in the world that can build a straight line with a fiber like that. So, yeah, fiber types in 2023 are slightly better than the ones built in 1998. But we haven't really seen any fantastic development in fiber types. So mm -hmm. even if you build a new cable, that still has the same limitation with Shannon's limit with it. So the only way to as you said, you know, to grow this is to put more trains on the tracks next to each other and right. use all the tracks in, in that cable. Instead of only using one fiber pair, you, you now need to start to use 10 fiber pairs or, or 15 fiber pairs. So the stations needs to grow very big, you know. We need to lease a lot more space from data centers and data centers needs to be larger to host all the telecom gear that is then serving all the servers that is in here. So uh, quite a big challenge for everyone in the market. It's a curious thing. I back again, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, we had massive telecom rooms and battery rooms and all this other stuff. And then that all got stripped out and removed, you know, in the era of the cloud and other things. I would say by probably 2008, there we don't have a battery room or not of any consequence anywhere. And now there's not that we'll go back to battery rooms, but now the the explosion of this connectivity is, you know, it's like we're all putting bell-bottom jeans on again, <laughs> or something. Yeah. You know, we're getting our we're we're getting our ABBA uh, patches on our on our blue jean vests, and we're you know we're we're getting the stuff. We need to develop uh, platforms within our data center to be able to in um, receive the influx of the telecom infrastructure that had been micro size, but now just to deal with the um, with the influx of connectivity, and and nobody yeah. is saying we're doing less because there's that's that has sailed. That's not going to happen. We're going to do more and more and more. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Traffic is growing, and we're going to do more and more and more. Luckily, yeah. the 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 size of the gear, as you said, is shrinking. So right. what used to be an amplifier that took like a big wardrobe before is now a couple of RUs, and and you put it in the middle of a server rack. So uh, gear are getting better in terms of power consumption and better sure. in terms of size. So that is good, but they're still quite sizable. And and, and right. when you need many of them parallel to each other, we certainly need more space. Yeah. So uh, you're you're absolutely right. There is there is a lot more equipment that goes in here and there is no sign in the world that traffic is going away. Right. For some time I felt, you know, the beginning of COVID, we had this enormous explosion of traffic and everyone felt, you know, that's the traffic growth of five years ahead. No, it's not. <laughs> traffic is still growing. I looked at the traffic growth in April the other day, and we're still seeing some three, four percent of traffic growth in the month of April, which used to be a quite calm month normally. And if you see right. four or five percent growth, then you kind of, yeah, it's going to be a lot of growth over the year again. Well, it's I'm certain I've said this many times on my show. The more we use, the more we want. And the more yeah. we want, the more we make. And the more yeah. we make drives the price down. And so then we, we use more. And it's just this circle. We, we use it. Once we get used to using it, we want it. Once we want it, we make it. Because we made it and made it cheaper, we use it. Like it just – like that – that's – I don't see an end um, to that cycle. Thankfully, to your point earlier about efficiency, while growth may have increased 70% or whatever the number is, power consumption has not increased 70% because they are so much more, it's increased, 
but it is yeah. not 70%, that would be a disaster. Even in our data centers, we see that. While the the amount of data and traffic that grows within the same, uh, center is exponentially growing, yeah. we've, we're getting so much more efficient at managing our internal infrastructure. We're working water out, so we're not consuming as much water. We're doing different types of uh, cooling uh, infrastructure. But it is a it's a race to keep up with the consumption and the development for sure. Yeah, no, and I I fully agree with you, and I think also the concern that everyone have about power consumption is spilling over to everyone. So I I think you know five years ago we never talked about megawatts per megabit, but now right. that's kind of the first question we have to Cisco when we meet them. You know, okay, your new your your new router, how much power does it consume per megabit and so on so everyone is aware of this and and i the suppliers are also aware of this they they really need to five years ago again it was just about oh this one can do so many terabits and and this is exactly what you need because your network is growing yeah fine we know that but at the same time um i remember nokia 15 years ago came with a router that kind of needed 100 amp fuses and it was like you know okay <laughs> we need a nuclear power plant next to it to to support it yeah it's going to be a fantastic box but no one can afford running that box right uh, and luckily those days are gone yeah all the technicians that were in the cold aisle came and stood next to the nokia box so they could warm up and uh um thaw out hey before we move on to um i want to talk more about that and you guys just uh, commissioned this really cool study that i'd like to learn more about but one of the things I've heard you talk about lately that I have no familiarity with is the idea of middle mile. I know the concept of last mile. Can you maybe describe just in a second, what is middle mile when we talk about fiber? What is last mile and why middle mile is part of your conversation right now? Yeah, no, uh, and, th and this is my interpretation of, the, of using the words middle mile sure. and last mile. But basically what we, when we build our network, we build, as I said, you know, we build it between Atlanta and Ashburn or Atlanta and New York. Right. That's what we call the middle mile. The last mile is what we connect from a data center like yours to the end customer, which okay. could be inside your data center or next door to your data center. But right. we terminate the equipment in the cities and we need to go to companies like you to host our gear. And from there, we connect to someone with the last mile because right. everyone is not in every data center. So therefore we need the last mile. But the middle mile is what we need now. And, and previously, as I said, you know, we, we never talked about the middle mile because the fiber pair we had in the middle mile was good enough for us mm. to continue to grow in. And, and when we outgrew the capacity, we just bought new shiny gear and everything was fine. Mm -hmm. That's when we now need more fibers. Uh, and in Europe, there is a, I wouldn't say an oversupply of fibers, but it was a lot of fibers being built in the late 90s, early 2000. While in US, we're still using a lot of fibers that had been built in US, but there is very little new fiber being built in US. There are, of mm. course, some ongoing projects in some parts of US where it hasn't been built that much. But right. really, there is a lack of long distance fibers or middle mile fiber in US. Uh, today, you know, we, if we feel we, we need to connect Atlanta to Charlotte, then we need to find utility companies, regional operators, local operators, asking everyone, you know, where is your fiber going? And, and right. is there anyone connecting to you in the other end that we can connect to and continue to? So that that's really a big challenge right now. Hmm. Uh, the former incumbents in US, 
the 18 T's and the sprints and everyone, yeah, they have some infrastructure, but that's very old. Mm. Uh, what is ever what everyone is focusing on right now is to build last mile fibers for 5G because mm. you want to connect every urban place in every city with this last mile so that people can take advantage of 5G services. But there's really no one that can afford building a new cable between big cities. And that's where there is a, a bit of a hole right now in the market for companies like us and others to grow. Right. Uh, why, why that's do you where think... the middle mile problem comes in. Uh, last mile, it's easy to find. A lot of people are building new fibers in cities to mm -hmm. connect neighborhoods and new locations and everything. But between the cities, there's a big lack of fibers. You would think if there's this um, uh, lack of connectivity that there's a business opportunity there. And um, I would think there'd be no end of people or organizations that would want to solve that. It What's the component? What's the complexity or the lack of interest? In, I, when you say cost, I, I understand cost, but it feels like there is an appetite, as we just said a few minutes ago, to, to use more, consume more. Um, one of the things, in my experience, whether it's in the EU or here in the states, we don't like we don't like lag, we don't like delay, we don't want um, <clears throat> a less than ideal customer experience. And so if we're if we're running into choke points because we're just not um, able to get through some of the major routes, that some organization or some number of organizations would be able to go and secure the right of way to lay new fiber or whatever, whatever the cost, and then just pass it on to the consumer. Um, why do you think there's more of that in Europe? Either because they were they had more foresight, or why is there a um, a resistance, whatever the cost to build it in the States. Cause it doesn't seem like it'd be very speculative. Like if you build this, no, it's no, going no, to get it, sold. It, it, yeah, no, you're right. It's in some way it's not speculative, but it's, but in some way it, it really is, you know, if, if uh, no one, no operator can <clears> afford <throat> building a new cable between two cities and, 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 and sort of hope to sell capacity on that to recoup the money, you need to start to sell fiber pairs to others. Of course, mm -hmm. the hyperscalers are all interested in building out their networks, mm -hmm. but it takes a lot of time and effort to, to get them all on board because you practically need all of them on board. Uh, digging new fiber cables is quite costly. There is a cost of all the excavators and everything. There's a lot of time spent on getting the right way to, to lay it. You know, you need to talk to landowners, you need to talk to everyone along the way. So it is actually quite costly to build these networks. Uh, I would argue that if you get a few hyperscalers and a few operators on board, then yeah, it's not that speculative anymore and people can afford to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're building something between the on, on the east coast of US, it's quite simple to calculate that uh, right. because there's a lot of traffic, a lot of people living there and so on. But if you're building somewhere in the middle of US or in the northern part of US where not too many people live, uh, yeah, the number of customers you can sell to is suddenly shrinking a lot. And yeah, no one really dares to do that. At the same time, yeah, if all com if all operators comes together to do it, then, you know, what's the what's the advantage of going with us or someone else? And mm -hmm. everyone is a bit scared of working with your competitors. At the same time, you, you kind of have to. Right. So it, it's a bit of a tricky situation. There has been, I would say carrier neutral companies coming in saying, you know, we're going to build this and we're going to sell fibers to whoever wants. And they're typically backed up with 
by one or a few hyperscalers who've said that, okay, if you build this, we promise to buy a number of fiber pairs. But still, you know, they don't make a fortune on this one. Mar market, the, the margins in our world is, is still tough. And as you said in the beginning, people expect the price of your broadband service to be cheaper every year because right. you want to consume more at less price. And, and that's, that's a tough calculation for operators and others in the market. So therefore, in Europe, everyone jumped on this train in 1998 when when the train was going and everyone felt you know oh this is going to be the future let's build broadband everywhere so we right. completely overbuilt europe with fibers <clears throat> that never happened in the us and that's why us still have this bit of a problem especially in the more rural areas have you driven across the us much i don't mean the big cities but have you driven east west in the us ever I've never really driven along okay. the way. I've been to a couple of cities there, but I, I, I can only imagine that it's a lot of <laughs> a lot yeah. of empty space. <laughs> it, it is, but here's what's interesting. You could go to, um, you know, I can get in my car here and drive to Bismarck, North Dakota, for example, a great okay. college town, but it, compared to even in Atlanta, which is on the ragged edge of a tier one city, it's, it's not the size of Birmingham, Alabama, which is a, three hours up the road or Montgomery, Alabama or Tallahassee, Florida. Maybe it's the size of a Tallahassee, which is a community surrounded by other communities of similar size. So Bismarck, there's nothing around Bismarck except for maybe the train depot and Minot. But the U.S. government came in after World War II and built freeways. There's not eight freeways in North Dakota, but there are a couple freeways, east, west, north, south. And they didn't say um, – I, I don't know. I wasn't there when President Eisenhower did this. But there was for sure a let's build the infrastructure for all citizens. We have to have – every state has some uh, inter, interstate freeway federal infrastructure built. Uh, private entities have come along or the states have come along and built off of that and connected that. If you go into the Northeast Corridor to your point earlier about um, – um, you know, the availability of fiber, like we've got the freeway system from Massachusetts down through to Virginia is much more comprehensive and much different than it is in the Midwest where there's much fewer people. There's many more natural obstacles, but it was still built, maybe not as robust, but it's still built because we have citizens there. Our agricultural communities live in the upper Midwest um, throughout the U.S. And if there's one industry that's poised for a technology revolution, it is that industry. They have to have as much or more connectivity than any other part of the U.S. from an industry perspective. So it almost sounds like the way that we solve this problem is that our state and federal government are the ones that are tackling the costs and the right-of-way and yeah. the solution of this as opposed to so maybe with partnership with some of the big tech firms. No, absolutely. I think you're perfectly right. And I think actually the same thing is happening in Europe right now. I think the EU have come in and said, you know, yeah, everyone wants to build fiber cables between London, Passive, London, Paris, Frankfurt, and Amsterdam, but there's right. no one that dares to build any fiber cables towards the east, towards the south, towards the north. Right. But I think both US and Europe are on these government programs right now because they've realized the market is not going to fix this. We need to yeah, incentivize them to do this. And, and that's happening both in North America and in Europe. So yeah. you're absolutely right. Uh, some parts will never be built unless someone is helping them. Yeah. So let's talk about this study around power consumption. I mean, if we're talking about mm -hmm. all this growth, we're also talking about energy. 
What what was the study you commissioned, and why did you commission it? Yeah, no, it, it was it was more like uh, the feeling we have in our company is that power pricing is roughly about 15, 70% of our total cost, uh, right. because we obviously have a lot of data centers like yours and, and amplifier sites and everything, and there's a lot of things. So power is a big thing for us. And when power pricing goes up, we just wanted to feel if, if our customers are feeling the same thing. So we conducted a survey across North America, uh, in US, in France, in Germany, and in UK, and we asked business leaders, do you feel the pressure of energy prices and what you do about it and has this had any concern around your own production and and so on so we were we were just curious about if they felt this and mm. and what the interesting thing that came out of the service was that uh, everyone is worried uh, people in us are more a bit more worried than people in europe are worried but the fun thing was that people in us are very worried about the supply itself that there won't be enough energy going forward for them to yeah, manufacture their productions. While in Europe, people felt the energy is there, but the price is the problem. Mm. People in the US felt the price is going to be okay. Uh, everyone is going to make sure the price is okay, but the supply is the is the scary thing. While people in Europe felt, you know, supply is there, but the price might price us out of this market and so on. So I think the, the, what came out of this was that, yeah, energy prices is pushing everyone. Uh, everyone is afraid of this. And obviously, with war going on in Europe, and, and there's a lot of power coming from that part before, which is not coming anymore. Uh, Germany closing down nuclear plants. Uh, I think they closed the last one a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yes, wind and solar is good, but it's absolutely useless for <laughs> data centers. Right. You can't have wind and sun when it's not, you know, it's unusable right. when it doesn't <laughs> blow or, or shine. So. I think we're all in, in a bit of a trick here, and, and that's just going to get worse. As you said in the beginning, there's nothing stopping you guys from building more data centers and us from building larger networks. So we need more energy. Right. Uh, not just is there nothing stopping us, there's great pressure on us to do it because it is the modern economy. And there's like, like if, even if in our most, um, if we think about this in our most beneficial way, if there's a way to to take some of these AI tools that hopefully we get a chance to talk about in a little bit and apply it, for example, to cancer screening and healthcare in uh, poverty impacting, just on and on and on. And you need the data sets and the data centers and the connectivity to interlink this, make it a, a massive neural network of infrastructure. We're, we're going to press for that. We're not going to slow that down. And so I think it's, it's naive to think that, um, um, you know, when you have the ability to impact saving lives or raising people out of poverty or whatever, that, that somehow you're going to get a group of people to slow down. Usually what they'll say is, well, the have nots are saying the haves are asking us to slow. We're not going to slow. We want to have what the haves are. And I, I'm not trying to be um, uh, provocative, but it is, I, I just think it's a naive way to think about it. I am curious though, back to the study, I would think that... Um, in Europe, they would be as much worried about the supply as anybody because there's so much of the supply can come from the affected areas. Uh, I, I, did, I don't live in Europe, obviously. I have mm -hmm. friends. Um, one of my very, very close friends is German, um, yeah. has lived in the States for 35 years. She and her family have just relocated to Spain. But we had an interesting yeah. conversation about this. And my other very good friend is French. He's a heavy diesel 
uh, mechanic who has been in the States now for about 20 years, but very, you know, they're very, they still carry their EU um, citizenships and very connected. And, and they seem to be as uh, stressed as, um, as I might be the Germans about, man, you know, we've shut down these nuclear plants and I'm not taking a position on nuclear, but they're, you know, we're getting some fuel from this, you know, natural gas over here and from these other things. Are we making ourselves more vulnerable? What happens with this conflict? Because we don't know where that's going. And the French, uh, my French friend anyway, is saying, look, you know, we have nuclear power or we have other power. We have all of this other power. Um, and then what we lack in food, we buy from the Netherlands or whoever. And um, yeah, they, uh, it's this curious thing, but they seem to be like, uh, I wasn't in the survey, but for me, um, in the group that I run in, uh, how do I want to say this? We feel very strongly about the idea of having energy sovereignty. Like if I have to go get energy because it's less expensive than producing it, I th the, the states believes it can produce most, if not all of its energy. It just gets very expensive because we've got to do it other than cheap ways. But we don't have to do that right now because we have got such great neighbors to the north and Mexico for that matter that have energy, yeah. but primarily Canada that we can, uh, natural gas and others that we can get from them that works fantastic. But we are, we see what goes on in the world and we don't like this idea of some other sovereign nation or just a natural disaster that could impact our our ability to be a, be a modern country as Price would be set. I think that would follow your survey as well. Price would be second to us, but just availability. I don't know why that is. That's a cultural thing. But um, no, and I, uh, I think I think you're absolutely perfectly right. And I think we were a bit surprised by the the lack of worry in Europe because I think the thing in Europe we've always been used to having as much energy as we want. So this is a new thing for everyone, and maybe everyone hasn't really. Right. understood this yet and so on but but I, I would argue with you that there are bigger worries in Europe about the supply as well than than the survey came out with mm -hmm. um, obviously the countries in the Nordics where I represent where I come from we don't really have a worry because we have uh, such a big hydro plants and and uh, a lot of <clears throat> other stuff here but because right. we have that sort of natural right. energy source like Canada have uh, up, up right. in the Nordics but I would say middle Europe UK uh, Southern Europe, Spain, Italy, Greece, Portugal, there is absolutely a big worry here. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, last year when all the rivers dried out in that part because of the <laughs> extreme heat we had, right. then suddenly a hydro plant without water is pretty useless. So um, there are absolutely big worries in Europe as well around this. So what was the conclusion? You, you get these 400 respondents. There's some interesting data but was there any, hey, we should go do this or take action? Or is it more, what do we do no, with I all think, this? I think, we were, I think we were more curious about the, this one. Uh, there is a more more about, if, if, are they concerned? Are they worried about this? Or, or don't they really see this worry? And then, of course, at the end of the day, all of us operators need to start to think, you know, prices can't drop every year on all our services when all the costs of producing it right. goes up. Because right now... We've always been very reliant on that Cisco and Uniper and Infineer and Sienna have dropped their prices every year. You get twice as much capacity for the same price or, or less price of a box. Right. And of course, their production cost goes up as well. So they've started to tell us that, you know, we can't drop prices anymore. And then 
if if the sort of cost of labor goes up, cost of real estate goes up, cost of power goes up, then at the end of the day, we need to tell our customers, you know, the price for this circuit needs to go up, actually. It can't right. really go down. So I think it was more to get, yeah, find out if they are prepared for this or if this will come as a shock right. for everyone. And I think they're kind of prepared. I think they're all aware of that everyone have this problem. Yeah. I'm going to guess that you're a little bit younger than me, probably by somewhere between eight and 10 years. I can't tell. You've got a little bit of the gray, but you've got baby smooth skin. So it's hard to guess. And we're, we're communicating over all these miles. But did you ever, as a kid, build your own PC, your own gaming PC? Did you ever do that when you were a kid? Uh, or yeah, did you no, buy them already really built? No, no, no. We had, we had the. I was here when the Commodore sixty four came around, and and you could play those games, and and of course there was stuff in there you could attack to to develop right. and and play games in a better way, and so on. So I've, right. I've kind of been been part of that in the middle of the eighties as well. Okay. Uh, so we are similar. So when in the, for me it was in the early to mid nineties. I was never interested in computers as a kid. I was into dirt bike racing and. Uh, yeah. outdoor sports and all that kind of stuff. My family has a rich tradition in computers. And uh, uh, my dad was at IBM for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years, most of that on the space shuttle. And then later at Boeing on space station and but all my family somewhere. But I discovered computer gaming in the early 90s and my friends would build their own computers. So they would go to the computer store and they'd get the hard drive and the all the components. They'd build it for themselves and later you learned how to overclock and get into the BIOS and do all this other stuff and free up DOS memory and just like, ah, and we did all that stuff and it was really cool. But this is my point. Other than that initial probably early through mid 80s, super expensive because they were so unique. Back when you used to be, at least in the States, you could get a catalog called Computer Shopper. It was like 18, 24 inches tall by three inches thick. And you could go through there and you'd order all <laughs> the different components. And it was this glorious thing of assembling it, right? Yeah. And for about twelve to 1500 bucks, you could get a 286 megahertz desktop gaming system that would leave skid marks on your desktop. Like it was 40 megabyte hard drive, dual floppies, smoking hot, unbelievable. <laughs> For the next, I'll bet you, if you go to Tom's Hardware today, uh, Matthias, they will tell you, here's four budget computer gaming rigs, a $1,000, a $1,500, a $2,000, and a $4,000. In other words, my point is, while the power of these systems has increased exponentially over the last 25, 28 years, you're still in that $1,200, $1,500 range for an intermediate, what my budget could afford, gaming computer. Yep. But, but your gaming computer could do ray tracing for 3D, whatever. So here's yep. what, what does this have to do with our conversation? My daughter, my just-turned-20-year-old daughter, came to me the other day. And she has a gaming computer and she wants to build her first gaming computer. And I said, okay, we'll go get some components and here's what we'll do. And she couldn't believe that the cost has risen from 1500 bucks to 1800 bucks. First time in history of our family building computers to do gaming. And it's exactly to your point that while yes, I'm, I'm achieving these exponential growth, I've always been able to achieve that because the components have gotten 
twice as powerful at half the cost every generation. And we very rarely bought the latest gen. We bought like last year's gen on sale because that would accomplish what we want. So here my 20-year-old is, and I'm chuckling, letting her uh, understand how market forces work. But it also was weird to me for 30 years, I've been able to build a roughly $1,500 computer and get the last gen's top of the line stuff. And I can't do that now. It's 300 bucks more or a 30% increase over the previous year where normally it stays flat. And it's interesting as you're describing this in the sophisticated telecom industry, it's kind of the same thing. No, but it's the same thing. It's, it absolutely needs to go the same way. And everyone is talking about it that we haven't really seen it yet, but it's the same thing happening. Uh, Every time you meet one of our customers buying IP from us, you know, they expect the price to be half the price, but they will commit to twice as much traffic. And then we, yeah, we continue to send the same type of invoice to them every year, same right. amount, <laughs> more traffic, less cost per unit, and then it ends up at the same price. But that can't happen anymore because no one as an operator can afford that because everything else we do is becoming more costly. So right. uh, you're absolutely right. Your your computer thing there is is dead right. You know, um, yeah. they can't come, they can't. Uh, provide you with gear anymore at the same price. Yeah. It, has to be, it has to go up. Well, and I've also now outed us as computer uh, game players. We'll talk about that later. Let's talk about AI. My sons are, my sons are much better than I am. So <laughs> I know, um, I can't. According to them, I'm absolutely useless. <laughs> yeah, my kids as well. I asked them the other day, we, ha- we now have consoles. I keep trying to get a keyboard and a mouse to work with the console, but they won't even let me do any first-person shooters or anything now. I'm just, <laughs> I'm not as twitchy as I used to be 20 years ago playing World of Warcraft and before that, yeah. my racing games and whatever. It's uh, <laughs> It's pathetic. Let's yep. talk about the whole world's having a moment. We 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 can't escape our conversation without talking about AI. Is yep. having a moment with, um, in particular, when we say AI in the current conversations, at least with the general public, we're talking about generative AI. So large language model things like ChatGPT or Dolly or or um, which is also a generative AI. Um, And I also read something that I thought was really interesting on how some of the major U.S. carriers are looking to use these things to enhance their customer service or their route optimization or, you know, there are a variety of ways. I don't know how much of it is hype, but certainly they've published these ideas that they're going to use these things. Maybe I can get some of them on the program to talk. From your vantage point, both at your organization and just looking at the industry as a whole – are they talking about these models um, and and how they can, you know, are they beneficial to them other than just generating more traffic? And and how would they, how could you imagine, whether it's your organization or others, taking advantage of them to uh, enhance uh, both your product and your customer's experience? Yeah, no, uh, I think you're absolutely right. This is going to change everything we do. Uh, there is a board meeting right next to me where I sit right now, where our new board is here. Uh, and I was in there presenting some stuff before I came here. And, and we mm. talked about chat GTP, for instance. And they said, you know, next board meeting needs to be all about chat GTP and how you explore that and what you can do with that. So I think you're dead right. We There is so many things we see we can use with this. Networks are, as, I, as we've talked about before, is pouring out data. There's a lot of data coming out. And today... Yeah, hardly any of that data is used. Uh, but there's a lot of things you can start to correlate and you can, yeah, basically ask the system to learn itself. When when this and this and this happens, then typically this happens later on. Right. All of that is something that we're looking forward to start to use. 
initially, I think everyone felt, you know, chat GTP, is that even going to help us? You know, yeah, it's going to generate more traffic. More traffic means more money. Great. But can we actually use it as a company as well? And I've started to see more and more use cases now coming in. I heard the other day that, you know, suddenly we can start to communicate with customers in more languages uh, simply because, yeah, the new robots are coming out and the language is almost perfect when it comes out. Uh, I think, you know, if we can call Google Translate AI, then I actually used that previously today. There was a text I needed to change the language on and, and I used Google Translate to give me some ideas and it just came out really, really well. Right. So I think we've just seen the start of this and, and, and we now need to start to figure out, okay, if machine learning and AI comes in, you know, what can we ask our robots to learn from the data that's coming out of our system? Instead of manually starting to find patterns, we should of course let computers start to find these patterns. Yeah. And this is only for us. I can, I can just see so many other industries that's gonna be super impacted by this. Um, yeah. I think it's already destroyed universities. <laughs> Both my sons are in the university and they. Uh, I hear now that the, the school is shutting down this opportunity and, and all the exams going on from now will be verbally and not written anymore. Yeah. It's just, and we just had a case in Sweden uh, a couple of days ago with the first student that was uh, suspended from school because of this. Yeah. Uh, I. It's... Um... So I'm going to work backwards. I'm going to start with this, and then I'm going to go back to it in the telecom business. I, I've been fortunate in that I've got to talk to a couple experts in this area, in particular, uh, Kendall Hartley, who is um, a professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and his uh, PhD research work and all of his expertise, um, research expertise, is in the impact of technology on learning. And... It started with smartphones, and it's it's moved into uh, AI. And he and others like him are certainly um, concerned in the in the sense of unfettered access. One of the biggest problems with these tools is when they're inaccurate, or they yeah. are because they are. We we were short of a bio. We were publishing a podcast the other day. And the person uh, wasn't available to provide their bio to us. And so we just asked ChatGPT, hey, go, go put together something. And they created this amazing like biography. I wish I had written it. And we were about <laughs> to publish it. And I said to my producer, one of my producers, actually, you know what? Let's just fact check this before we – it was so wrong. It got our name right. It got like one thing right. And all the rest of it was wrong. And it's not trying to be wrong, but it was just wrong. Dates were wrong. Uh, credentials were wrong. We had to fix the whole thing. And if we hadn't fact checked it, or if you ask, for example, an engineer, if an engineer at your organization said, I want you to look at optimizing routes for me f- across these things at an energy consumption that looks like this and a latency profile that looks like whatever, what, you know, and they, and it gets a yeah. result back. They have the ability because of their experience to look at it and say, these things have promise. These things are factually not true. We cannot yet uh, bend Newtonian physics like that. That's not accurate, yeah. but it can inspire them into refining their ask, letting the tool learn and getting better and maybe enhance their ability by 20, 30, 60%. Perfect uses of it, genius. And then help me to summarize my findings into a paragraph or two because I'm not a very good public speaker. I use too many words or whatever. I'm not very succinct. 
so that I can present it to the board. And then, man, that that's fantastic uses of it. When yeah. they um, not just plagiarize, because I think technically, because it's original content, it may be looking at other people's data and then rephrasing it or whatever. But it is um, anyway. My, this professor said to the idea of outlawing this thing is a fool's errand. It will never happen. In this, we tried this with phones. We've tried this with other things. It's never going to happen. Not only that, the the, infra, the universities don't have the infrastructure or the staffing to police it or manage it. Or like it's, no. he's not throwing up his hands. He's saying we. He goes. It's a podcast for another time. I'm not going to revisit it. But there are mechanisms and behaviors and codes that we can frame up. And then how do we leverage this tool? And he gave an example of one of his students, without belaboring it, that has that understands the content but has a lot of trouble for a variety of reasons articulating what they know. So they use the tool to get it into a written form to articulate it, and then they are verbally assessed. And it is apparent when they're verbally assessed, they absolutely know what they're talking about. But in terms of writing and using language where they don't have a lot of skill, this is a um, – I think it's a mathematical uh, student that comes from a very dis- – well, it doesn't matter. But anyway, they use a tool like this. And he said, I just think we in the States have universities that are banning this and trying to block it. But it's just – it's not going to work. It's a lot of energy for something that's not going to work. Instead, how do we do assessments to um, – how do we leverage the tools to teach our students and then do assessments to make sure they understand the um, the knowledge? We should focus on that. And when they do use these tools in their work, cite it. I used this tool. It generated this content. These were my edits. Just cite it like you would any other course of material. But it is, uh, it's curious times. Oh, it, re- it really is. It, it really is. And, uh, and to your point, I, I just, <laughs> the other day, I tried to make my own CV out of the tool and and, uh, and it came out wrong as well. So <laughs> it, it inspired me in some way to give, to, to make it different, but it said that I had worked at Ericsson and I've never worked at Ericsson. So uh, you're absolutely right. You need to be careful about the facts yeah. uh, and used in the right way. It's going to be super powerful because it can really inspire you, but you need to be careful. Yeah. So is the board there excited about leveraging the finding ways Absolutely. to leverage? Absolutely, the they tool? were super excited, and they they really started going. So we almost ended up in that discussion already in this meeting. So I, <laughs> we kind of paused it now until uh, the next board meeting. I love that it's super exciting. I I just hope that as we rush to use these tools, you know, these tools can have godlike power, but they don't have empathy, and um, and if they're wrong, they're really wrong really quick. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm an optimist. I want to use them. Let's just, until we're certain that it's um, in whatever application we're using, yeah, this is, we're on the right track. Now let's crush it. Um, we should just be cautious. Yeah. Hey, uh, what, as we wrap up, one, again, thank you for coming on the show, keeping an eye on the time here. Um, I heard you talking about predictions. You and I have had many conversations in the past, so I'm not yeah. going to go back and revisit all the predictions um, it's fun at the time. What I find with predictions is it's rare that they're wrong. They're just not always on time. You know, things we guess may take longer yeah. or happen quicker. But there are two emerging areas I've heard you talk about that you think are going to be important in 2023. One of them, security, and the other, quality. And so as we wrap up this program, what do you mean by security and quality uh, as being yeah. the emphasis? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, basically, security, we've been really good in our industry to talk about logical security and, and traffic security and DDoS attacks and how do we protect the networks from all type of intruders and attacks and, and everything. But we've rarely talked about physical security in our industry. And I would say until 2020 or 2022, there was no point in talking about that. We've, we've actually shipped around maps of every map uh, and every network around the world. So it's not that difficult to find. If you want to do some damage to a cable, you can easily find where the cables are because that's almost public material. Right. But I think 2022 really changed that. Hmm. Uh, we have the war going on here. We have a lot of other stuff happening around the world. The world is not the same place as it was before. And suddenly I would say that Physical security has become really important. We have the Nord Stream cables in the Baltic Sea that's been cut. Uh, they're not really? used anymore. There's no gas flowing in them. So I would say the amount of time I spend with journalists and others explaining what we do to our cables, how we protect them from being found and all that stuff. And all of this at the same time as we want to show everyone in the world where we have our network right. so that they can buy our services and, then, and, and really trust that our cables are diverse to the ones they buy and so on. So this is really a tricky situation for the telecom world right now. And one day you want to show on a map where you have all the cables, you want to show to all the fishermen that, hey, be careful around this part of the right. sea because here is a cable. You can go with your trawler on that side, but don't on that side. And at the same time, we don't want anyone to know where the cables are so that no one knows where to blow them up so right. this uh, when i talked about security this one this was much more about physical security and the amount of questions and and things we do today fencing in stuff locking doors putting cameras is is madness compared to what we did two three years ago so that was my prediction with security before the year and that has really panned out we spend more time and money on security this year than we've ever done before uh, and at the what? same time do you want to make your network available for everyone? And and uh, yeah, a dream would be to have a public website with your entire map. And at the same right. time, that would be your worst nightmare. Yeah. Why why do you think there's been this change? Is it just the war in Europe? I I really don't know. I I can't really speculate. I think no. you know the problems that France had. No one really knows. It's a police thing, but it seems right. I could guess that it could be other reasons it could be right. it doesn't mean to be someone it needs one person to do it and if that person have a you know a weird reason you might have been fired for things you feel you right. shouldn't been fired for and, and you know where the cables are and you just cut them you know you never really know right so but but certainly the war in europe has changed the attitude from many uh, around cables right. and so on and and it's so easy to damage a cable and you know there was a lot huge report in the independent this morning that uk is dependent on all the sea cables towards uk and of course if all of them are cut uk is cut around cut off from the world right uh, so the consequences of cable cuts are big uh, right. and therefore newspapers love to write this at the same time i feel that there isn't genuinely interest in the world to keep connectivity up and running right i don't really see anyone yeah there's an interest to listen to others and and see what happens in other parts so I don't really see this threat as, as bad as everyone else sees it, but, yeah. but it's still there. At least at the nation state level, you know, some of this would be if you, if you, if you can trace back to a nation state, an act of war is basically what it is, um, yeah. doing this to 
um, another sovereign nation that is not at war with it or whatever, you you know you're going to be certainly from one of the five ten UN major nations. They are going to they're they're in treaty with somebody. They're going to respond in kind, and that's just an escalation. That is, uh, it's a disaster for everybody. I could see a rogue actor that wants to uh, interfere with a particular political ideology or um, economic model, messing around with it. It's just interesting that it's arguably more vulnerable uh, in the past. There's less um, people looking at these things, but they were accidental cuts or um, impacts in the past. They weren't on purpose. But it it also reminds me that the um, there's an organization called the IEIC that started, um, you know, a number of years ago, and they talk a lot about, and they were talking about it, this problem, which is we have a certain number of paths, we have a certain number of routers, we have a certain number of intersections, and if those, if we just do this traditional carrier hotel, if we don't have a diversity of path and a div- and uh, physical protection, we're not that many routers away or that many paths away from significant. Um, impact to global connectivity, we shouldn't shy away from it. We should embrace it and do what we can as uh, both at the nation level and at the in the states. It would be at the state level, but I'm sure there are county organizations or whatever provinces or regions in these different nations to protect these assets because it is next to energy. It's the second most digital infrastructure, second most needed thing to have a modern economy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would also say that sort of peace in the world kind of relies on that people still yes. communicate because the worst thing you can do is to cut someone off because then you you really don't know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And then you were talking about quality. What did you mean yeah, by quality? The other, one, the other one I talked about was quality. And I feel uh, for many years, the telecom industry have been really good in talking about, you know, our network is 99.99999, whatever. Right. Uh, and no one really understand what that means. Uh, and I would say, in order for us to differentiate and for for everyone in our industry to differentiate, there are other words we need to talk around quality in terms of delivery times, in terms of repair times, uh, acting on things, sending the correct invoice to someone. And and I would say, the the good thing is now that when I when I when we talk to customers, those more softer things are what they really refer to because I think all networks have become really good and and there are rarely mm-hmm. networks that is less than ninety nine point nine 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 uptime. Right. You know, they're right. built to be resilient. The days when someone just put a cable over a parking lot is over. Uh, we had that we previously where people, you know, it, it needs to be up and running quickly and you know, yeah. Service right. assurance could become later. So I think uh, my feeling is that we haven't really talked about quality in our industry, but suddenly when we started to talk about this, others have started to talk about this. And now the quality of the service that you provide to someone is so much more than just the uptime of the service. They expect to, it's supposed to be simple to order. It's supposed to be simple to pay. It's supposed to be, yeah, everything you interact with customers is much more important than before. And, and they want a more of a personalized feeling when they buy services from us, uh, which, of course, for a company like us is is important to know. And we we spend a lot of time on trying to be as customer-friendly as we can. Yeah. But a good thing is we're coming away from, yeah, you know, my network is better than yours. Yeah, Yeah, it might be, but who cares? It's all about the softer side that, that we care about, you know. 
Yeah. yeah. The thing that I've enjoyed so many times in the multiple conversations we've had, and I, I believe this is a reflection of the culture that you help evangelize, not just in telecom, but um, your current organization, which is the rebrand of the older organization. And it is this idea of, um, and I think this is where you're going, this evolution of not just transparency, but how how is it if we miss, um, how do we communicate we've missed and be accurate and be yeah. timely and be transparent and invite you in on the after action report and how can we do better um, you know, here's the engineering solution that we've brought together, but here's how, as we work together uh, in the future, you know, loyal, I think loyal customers are made when there's a failure because there will be a failure and we recover through it together elegantly and transparently yeah. as opposed to um, they just never have, you know, they have a seamless experience. That's a good customer and they like you, but they, you know, the like all things in humanity, when we strive together and we overcome and we get stronger, we get better and our relationship deepens. And I've always, I don't know if that's just you personally, as you've articulated it or the organization, I got to believe it's a combination of both, yeah. um, except for your lack of gaming skills, which I could completely relate to your kids. <laughs> yeah. But in, but in all no, seriousness, think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we're trying to be transparent as possible. And I think what we've learned is, you know, People will find the truth anyway, uh, yeah. and, and if That's we don't right. speak the truth in the beginning, you know, someone else will find out the truth, yeah. and then it's much worse. Yeah. Uh, and I know so many outages during the last couple of years where we've read the report from the ones we had the traffic with, and we feel like that can't be right, like that right. can't be what happened. And then a week later, you know, engineers talking to engineers, you start to find out what actually happened, right. and you feel like, why didn't they say that from the beginning? You know. Right. Every one of us makes mistake. Right. I remember in 2016, that was the last time we had a big outage. And, and we actually had a conversation with most of our largest customers about this. And we were super transparent telling them. And some of them were like, you're idiots who, who tells us this. But at the right. same time, we like it because you actually told us what happened. Right. And at the same time, we obviously could tell them that this is never going to happen again because we've in, invented the process and we've changed this. And this is now the way we run this and so on. But I think we learned a lot from that one. That, you know, being transparent, yeah, we lost two customers who said, you know, this fault was so ridiculous, we can't be with you anymore. But right. the other 98 customers stayed and said, this was great, you know. Right. Thanks for the honesty. You told us it was a stupid mistake by a human person, but you learned from it and you you go. And I think yeah. that's what we try to do. We try to be, every, everyone understands telecom is difficult sometimes. Why mm -hmm. and why not be transparent with that? I hate people who stand on stage and say that everything is perfect and their new system is going to blow out everyone. It's like everyone right. knows that's not going to happen. No one else knows. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that's what maybe, we try to do. Maybe if it's chat GPT powered, it'll be perfect, <laughs> but probably yeah. in the real world it won't be. Yeah, exactly. Well, well Matthias, thank you for uh, joining us today. I know we could I could talk easily for another hour or two with you, but uh, you've got things to do, and um, I want to honor your time. Uh, what's uh, what's up next in the near term for you? Well, first of all, if people want to hear more about Aurelion or you, how do they connect with you? And secondly, what are you up to in the next as an evangelist? Are you out on the road anywhere, or are you just going to be online? What's the plan for you? 
Yeah, no, uh, that's a good question. No, if they want to connect to us, it's obviously Aurelion.com. That's the web address. Uh, okay. And people are perfectly fine to go in there. They'll all find right. my details in there. They'll find all the details of our company in there. Okay. Uh, so that's perfectly fine. For my own purpose, uh, I have a couple of trips. There's a couple of shows coming up in May that I need to attend. Uh, are they in uh, and Europe? apart from that, you know, we, yeah, it, it's going to be... Yeah, trying really to figure out how we can, as a standalone company, become even better, you know. Now we're not strangled by a former owner who had their own ideas of how to right. run stuff. Now we're on our own and therefore we have the opportunity to develop in a better way than before. Yeah. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing how that develops. Yeah. Jeez, thanks for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. It was it was great fun. Great fun. Hey, if you've enjoyed the conversation, like it. And if you had great fun, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody, on the QTS Experience. Take care.